and snowboarding also had what skiing didn't have it it had three cultural legs which it was standing on it was sport it was music and it was art so when you would open up a, a snowboard magazine, there was suddenly um, an article about a snowboarder who is painting, right? Or a snowboarder who is playing in a in a punk rock band. If you, and still now, if you open a, a, a magazine which is dedicated to ski racing, you're not going to find an article about a ski racer who is who is doing graffiti or who is playing the guitar. It's pretty much only about ski racing and about um, about performance of the equipment, but the actual spirit and the these intellectual components I just spoke about, this, this was completely new. Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the history of snowboarding and how its history and culture is impossible to detach from the history and culture of skiing. To cover this ground, we enlisted Peter Bauer, who probably has more credibility on this topic than virtually anyone else out there. Peter is an extraordinary guy. Born in Bavaria, he started skiing at the age of two. 16 years later, he saw his first snowboard and was immediately captivated. Then just two years after seeing that snowboard for the first time, he was riding at a high enough level that Jake Burton, the man himself, asked Peter to ride for him. And then Peter went on to become a five-time European champion, a four-time world champion, and one of the true pioneers of free riding. And as if all of that wasn't enough, Peter was also intimately involved in product design for Burton for about 20 years, Then around 2004, Peter co-founded Amplid, the first company ever to make both skis and snowboards right from the get-go. Peter and I touch on all of these things, and whether you are passionate about skiing or snowboarding, or skateboarding or surfing, which we also discuss, I am certain that you are going to appreciate this conversation. Before we get started, I want to quickly remind you that we are currently hard at work on our 1718 Winter Buyer's Guide, and if you want to be guaranteed a copy of the print edition of the guide, go to the Blister website, click on Become a Blister Member on the navigation bar, then follow the steps to become a Blister Member. You'll receive a print edition of the guide, get access to all of our flash reviews and deep dive comparison articles we publish on Blister, and you'll be eligible for the exclusive deals we set up for Blister members. And now, let's get to my conversation with a man who has seemingly never had time to waste a single minute of his life, Peter Bauer. Peter, how are you? Um, I'm very good, thanks, uh, Jonathan. I just woke up because we have a huge time difference. I think you're just about to go to bed. I'm just about to have a second coffee. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm really good. Good. Well, I might I might actually be having like my fourth coffee uh, here in a little bit, and, and we'll see about that bedtime. But yes, uh, it is currently 11.44 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, um, where I'm at. And it is currently what time for you, and where are you? It's 7.44. I am in Europe, in Germany, 
in Bavaria, uh, in the mountains, between Munich and Innsbruck, right on the Austrian border. And I'm looking outside and it's completely bluebird. Mm. But unfortunately, it's green outside and not white. But this may have to do with the fact that it's September. September, yeah. And it's, so it's 7.44 a.m., just to clarify. Uh, you, you, were, you were just yes. starting your day. Yeah. Um, well, Peter, I am, I am very pleased to be speaking with you. And um, it's very difficult to know where to begin when you're talking with um, such an accomplished snowboarder, um, someone who really has sort of been at the heart of snowboarding you can't even say the modern snowboard movement it's just at the been kind of through all of snowboarding and its history um to where you are now um with amplit and doing design work in both snowboard design work and ski design work so um our work is cut out for us in terms of uh covering a lot of interesting history um talking about current topics and um, so we're going to just dive in here and, and try to get started. Um, I'm curious to hear how you talk about your um, earliest days snowboarding and maybe talk a bit about how you got involved uh, with a little company called Burton and talk a bit about your uh, history with Burton. Sure. So uh, actually, let me start before I got into snowboarding, because before I got into snowboarding, I... I was skiing because everybody's skiing here. It's, <laughs> it's really well organized. Um, we have a good infrastructure. First of all, we have the ski resort, which is infrastructure number one, right? And then we have local ski clubs. And, and after school, they would pick you up at 12 o'clock. A little minivan would wait in front of the school and your boots and skis would already be in the truck. And then you would drive like five minutes to the chairlift. And then the coach would be waiting for you. And um, you would get to ride either only piste or you would ride gates. And this is what everybody does here. Mm. And when I was 18, and this is actually when I when I got into snowboarding, um, I stumbled across Ken Achenbach. Probably all snowboarders know Ken Achenbach. He's a Canadian guy who uh, pretty much was one of the guys who brought snowboarding to Europe. And he, I don't know why, but he went to my local ski resort for snowboarding and there's better resorts in the Alps than my local resort here, which is called Schliersee. Um, however, he got lost here and I saw his snowboard and he had another one he didn't use down at the restaurant. So I asked him whether I can I can try it out. And um, by that time, I was actually, uh, I was windsurfing. Hmm. And I was windsurfing, but this was actually a kind of a emergency thing because I didn't live at the ocean. All I could do is uh, serve on a lake so I needed a sail sounds pretty lame but this was the only option I had <laughs> and when I got my first uh, when I got my fix the first time on a snowboard I said man this is the perfect combination is this is like an alpine version of surfing uh, I don't need to ski anymore I don't need to, to windsurf anymore this is the real thing so I was completely hooked I I was trying his board for an hour Obviously, I fell on my on my butt, on my face, my 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 ring, my how to say, my my wrists were sore and everything. But um, I got myself a, a Burton snowboard immediately the day after, hmm. and and this is how everything started. Wow! So quickly, how old were you when you got on skis? I started skiing probably at the age of two. Wow. We were living right next to a little 
tiny Poma ski lift and my my mom, she would just walk across the road and we would be skiing there. And then when I was like five, I went up to the ski resort, which has a couple of chairlifts and gondolas and so forth. And and it's very normal here to start at the age of two or three yeah. and then pretty much ski uh, at least every weekend. And if your, uh, your school schedule allows it, you would also ski yeah on a on a weekday in the afternoon so you just said right that you first got on a snowboard at the age of 18 yes i was 18 so this was actually quite old but i i yeah. can't help it because snowboard really didn't exist yeah before. it didn't so, exist um, so the, it, the next the next day um when i when i met ken Achenbach, the ispo started in munich and the ispo is like the saa trade show what you have in the u.s yep. is the ispo in munich right so so I went there and there was a Burton booth and I went there and I said, guys, um, today is the last trade show. I want this board. I'm confident you don't need it anymore because um, you have to pack it anyway and, and, and bring it back home. So how much is it? I want it. So this board, he, he gave it to me because it was a little bit used. It was a, a Burton Elite 140 with uh, three fins. It had three steel fins. So... I don't really know how much I paid, maybe 400 marks, which would be equivalent to 200 US dollars or something like this. Mm -hmm. And then I went, uh, the next day, I went immediately. I had I had no snowboard boots. I just had like winter kind of trekking <laughs> boots. I had my, my ugly ski clothing and, and a, a very pretty headband, a knit headband. And I must have looked like a complete tourist, but I think everybody <laughs> looks like a tourist in the first, in the first hours. Yeah. And then I had, I had this board and I had two buddies and we were pretty much fighting who can get his feet on the board and who can go next. So as a consequence, I called this guy in the, in the evening because I, I had the, the phone number from the invoice and i said hey we need two more boards mm. and he said well i don't have any boards now but i get already the new boards which will be the burton cruiser the burton cruiser is already 165 long which was way longer than the one we had and still fins though but uh, he's gonna ship me two more cruisers so we have three boards for for all my buddies and and this how this is how everything started so i actually i handed the elite over to to my buddy and i took the burton cruiser two weeks after and um, this Burton Cruiser was actually the board I've been riding for almost two years um, because it worked pretty well for me. We have been really um, um, experimental and we took off the fins at some point because the fins were pretty much only for powder and on corduroy and hard pack fins didn't work at all. <laughs> but we, we, we didn't know that. You, know, you don't have anybody uh, where you can go to and ask what's what's. Uh, the best thing to do and you, there was nobody on this series or you could uh, throw an eye on and, and copy or check out what he's doing we were completely alone only skiers around us and us three guys with the snowboard for some reason i always think about uh, this sort of self-identity of this stuff i mean you started skiing at two and at age 18 basically what you're saying is the first time you ever saw a snowboard you were like must have you were ready to ditch skiing altogether. So I guess I'm just curious, um, was there this big self-identification as a skier or were you just kind of over it and interested in something new and different, like immediately? 
Um, first of all, I was never over skiing because there was no other option. I like <laughs> yeah. the snow. I, I love the mountains. I love the winter. Um, this was the only thing you can slide down that white stuff, right? So I didn't, I never questioned it whether this is the the right tool to do this activity, to practice that activity. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry. Whereas when I, when I first put my feet on a snowboard, um, I was I was so addicted, and and it didn't hit me in a moment where where I was sick of skiing, not at all. But it was just, it was new, it was a new challenge. Uh, you could observe yourself while getting better very quickly. This this um, experience I didn't have in skiing because when you reach a certain level to get better, it's really in micro steps. Um, whereas it was so much fun, it was so addictive, and I could, um, I, I was also skateboarding, and so many movements from skateboarding or from windsurfing could be adopted and suddenly could be used in the snow, and the sensation was just completely different. And especially, um, skis were really narrow, and you had zero flotation yep. sensation in powder. Whereas suddenly with a snowboard, you could float on top of that white stuff. And this was so addictive that I actually, um, if I could make, um, if I could have made decisions only for myself, I would have quit skiing immediately. But it's not that easy. It's not really social pressure that every kid has to ski. Um, it's It was not like this. It was more like, okay, my friends, they're all skiing, so... Uh, what do I do when when they go skiing next weekend? They they go up to the peak and and do some sick stuff, whereas I'm I'm down at the beginner slope, right? And yep. and all these kind of things. But um, the fact that um, three of my best buddies actually jumped on that train, yep. it really helped to to get away from skiing. It, it's probably a little bit like in in drugs when you have <laughs> rehab that tell you to to cut off with your social surrounding. Yeah. And I think that the fact that my tightest social surrounding changed drug, it was pretty easy to get away from the old drug. <laughs> Makes sense. How soon till you are now competing and winning snowboarding competitions? This all seems to have moved <laughs> very quickly in my understanding of this. Yes, the season after, there was a snowboard contest in Caprun, Austria, on the glacier. And snowboard contest actually is the wrong word because it was a chia slalom with three disciplines. Hmm. One was monoski, one was swingbow, and one was snowboard. Monoski, I think I don't need to explain. It's a, it's a French invention, and I think French is the last territory where, where monoskiing is still existing. Um <laughs> Then Swingbow was a kind of a skateboard with a mechanical thing underneath the deck and two skis with a lot of side cut. And if you would edge up the actual upper platform or the, the deck, um, the skis would uh, edge up and with the side cut you would make turns. But it was really short, it was really not stable and it looked a little bit goofy. And then there was... Uh, snowboard discipline so it was pretty much a chia slalom it was kind of a party for crazy people who had enough of skiing with with uh, with rock music in the finish area and with kind of like 
blonde babes who would hand out, who, who would hand over the trophy to you at the awards. So completely different than the typical uh, ski race with with Austrian folk music and with a, with a mayor shaking your hands. Right? You you rather have your hand shaken by a blonde babe than than by the mayor. And um, it was really everything was really completely different, and it was just a, a perfect add-on to to give us confidence that it, it was it was right to leave skiing behind and to do this this new thing. And in the finish area, apart from the blonde babe who who shook my hand because I won the snowboard discipline, another person came up to me, and this was Jake Burton. Hmm. And Jake came up to me and he said, "Well, um, you did a really good run. You've been." Two two seconds ahead of the of the second one. This is really good. I also saw your style, your technique. Hey, awesome! Congrats. By the way, would you like to ride for Burton? Mm-hmm. And I said, Well, what does it mean? Would I like to ride for Burton? And he said, Well, um, the cruiser is pretty much outdated. I have a new board for you if you want to give it a try. It's called the Safari, and we also have a new one which is called the the Burton Express, and completely new board shape concepts and um i would give you those boards and bindings and and then you see where the where the travel continues to hmm. and i said well sure sure i i i really want to try it out so i gave him a postal address and then he shipped me boards and i tried the boards and i uh, he also hooked me up with a german distributor at that time hmm. so i said well i really like the boards it's so much better and and so they said, okay, so if you really want to ride for Burton, next week there is um, World Championship in St. Moritz. And I said, well, I, yeah, okay, so sounds good. So, so what? And they said, well, uh, we would send you a racing suit with a Burton logo. And if you would all wear that, we also would, would pay your expenses because we all know that St. Moritz is, is like the Aspen of the, of the Alps. It's super expensive. It's a posh ski resort. Um, a pizza would cost three times as much as anywhere else. So I said, um, okay, so um, you pay my expenses here, so this sounds really cool. So I went there and I got I got second in, in the GS in San Moritz at the World Championships. I couldn't go to the freestyle um, World Championships, which were in Livigno. I don't remember why I couldn't go, but there was something else with a higher priority. So anyway, I got second behind Mark Heingartner, who is a, a guy from from New England? Really cool guy, uh, and um, so the the travel continued, and then I got I got more boards and I got more apparel, and there was the uh, another race in Austria, which was sponsored by Burton in Dubai, which I won, and I started to beat the American guys because Jake he let the the American guy fly in to do a little bit of promo, and this is how I actually. Um, yeah, ended up in the in the Burton team, hmm. and and not only as a team rider, but also, I it, it seemed that I had uh, I had the ability to to turn back precious feedback on product, so I hmm. was uh, immediately on the R and D team as well, and and this is how everything started. And so early on, it well early on, Jake or other folks at Burton kind of tapped you to say this we're getting really good product feedback from this rider um you also have to know that building snowboards or let's say like this building skis is an austrian core competence you know every 
every country has a core competence. The Swiss do the watches, the the Germans do pretty good cars. The Americans do pretty good cars as well. But me as being a German, I have to say that we make better cars. <laughs> and then the, the Austrians, the Austrians, they have been building skis for the last almost 100 years. So Jake came over to Europe for two reasons. First of all, he saw that there's a market because we have a lot of mountains, we have a lot of snow. So where there's mountains and snow, there's market. So we need to build up a subsidiary, number one. Mm -hmm. Reason number two was that he wanted to build his boards in Austria because all the ingredients such as base material, edges, sidewalls, top sheets, cores, all these things were already produced in Austria. So even if you want to produce your snowboard in the States, you don't really have such an easy access to all these materials. And if you find the right materials, you have to ship it over first and then glue it together in the US. Whereas he really relied on on this microcosmos of um, ski building ingredient kind of cluster and this is why he he came over to Europe as well. And this is also why he found it really pra practical that suddenly he has a, a European athlete who can also not only represent the Burton brand, but also can give input to product, but uh, without any, any intermediate um, communication link in between. Like I pretty much could go directly to the factory and go like, hey, listen, this nose is too high or we need more side cut here. And this is actually the way it was. We, we were working at, at my Burton era with two factories in Europe and um, I could just go there and make changements on the, on the press or on the core profile. And this was really, really helpful for all parties involved. Hmm. So what year... What year are we at and how old are you when you are kind of really starting to do some pretty significant um, product, uh, giving product feedback? What, what year and how old? Uh, um, this was around, this must have been around 86, 87. I was maybe 20, 19, 20. Okay. And um, you have to understand that in the beginning, I mean, uh, we were not micro adjusting the product. We were really making big changes. Like yeah. you might laugh now, but one of the biggest inventions snowboarding was the high back. Yeah. Because before people, when they had no high back, it worked only in powder and you could, you needed to lift up your toes to make a heelside turn. And now suddenly with a high back, you could make a heelside turn on hard pack. And another big invention was um, simply leaving the fins away because fins were a reminiscence of, of surfing. Uh, but fins were completely stupid on, on hardpack. They would make no sense. Yeah. But nobody thought about leaving the fins away. So we're not talking about um, micro adjustments on, on good stuff. The stuff was, was really far away from being good. And every change was a paradigm change. Yep. So... Um, the first year we, we, we were questioning everything. Do we need side cut or do we maybe need negative side cut or positive side cut? Should a board have a flex or should it be super stiff? Like mm. not fine tuning flex, like questioning, should a board have a flex at all? So <laughs> yep. the, 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 how would you say the adjustments we did were really, really big. 
And so the first two years, all those big adjustments were were done. And we said, okay, we actually, we, we want sidecar. We want sidecar like, like a ski and not like a surfboard. And we want the snowboard to be flexible, not like a surfboard. Hmm. And um, all these things. And then we really got into micro adjustments. So what kind of sidecar do we need? Where should the stance actually be in relationship to the side cut? How high should the nose be? Um, and then, of course, we we were using all these materials from skiing. So we were also questioning, okay, we have an aluminum tail bar. Should it be actually aluminum or should there be no tail bar at all? And so we, we also had to question not only geometries and flex, but also is the material used for skiing the right one uh, for snowboards as well. And it was a really, really interesting phase at that time. Yeah, sure sounds like it. And apart from apart from R&D, I mean, we were on a crusade, right? We wanted to make snowboarding being more fun tomorrow than today. So um, being on a crusade on the, on the gear side was one thing. But another and maybe even more important crusade was on the ski resort side because um, suddenly, and we're talking here around 89, 90, snowboarding was prohibited in almost all the ski resorts. It was, um, you, you would just walk up to the, to the counter, you wanted to buy your ticket, the lady in the counter would see a snowboard and then she would say, Ah, um, nah, sorry, no snowboards here, no snowboards. And if you would ask the question, why? They would just go, yeah, because it's like this. It's a ski resort, right? It's a ski resort, not a snowboard resort. Mm-hmm. So one ski resort after the other would actually close down in front of your face. And this was very difficult. And, um, I mean, skiing has been there for the last uh, 50 years, and it was called a ski resort. It was called... Uh, a ski lift and a ski shop and a ski school. And there was simply no space in the mind of people that there's suddenly another tool which you're riding down the mountains with. I mean, you can see it in the, in the wording, but I mean, wording has been done by, by minds. And imagine how difficult it is to enter into the, the mind of people and ask for tolerance. And, um, and really simply get on the lift and, and do what you love to do. Yeah. And But I think snowboarding, since it was so young, this really fired up this rebellish component in snowboarding. Um, the fact that you were actually not allowed and you really needed to go on a mission and find a lift operator who would actually let you go on his lift, this probably made it even more interesting. And I think it was... The, the prohibition of snowboarding in the late 80s, I think, was one of the success factors why snowboarding suddenly became such a hot shit and every kid wanted it. Yep. Yep. And when snowboarding um, started to be allowed again, it was not because lift operators, um, they liked snowboarding. It was simply because maybe this one ski resort in the other valley, they would allow it and they would suddenly have um, out of 10 customers, three snowboarders. And then they, 
every lift operator makes his own calculation and goes like, okay, so um, if I suddenly open up for snowboarders, um, I can sell more tickets. It was it was only through his accounting, only through his wallet that actually snowboarding suddenly was allowed on the mountain. It was never based on on a cultural understanding for snowboarding or on tolerance. It was simply through their wallet. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, I'd say that's right. And and um, as a consequence, snowboarding suddenly could grow. And it, it, it was really steaming. It, it's like boiling water with, with a lot of steam. And when you take off the lid, suddenly the vapor is just shooting out. And when, when snowboarding was, was allowed in all the ski resorts here in the Alps, um, snowboarding was really, um, it was popping out like mushrooms all over the place. Uh, ski schools suddenly would, would offer snowboard lessons. Um, ski shops suddenly would sell snowboards. And, and snowboard was there and you could see contests um, developing all over the place. You, we had the Aaron Style in Innsbruck, which was one of the biggest contests we had uh, during the ISF, the International Snowboard Federation. We had a really well-working World Cup circuit, uh, Europe, US, Japan with a point system with a lot of prize money. We had a lot of sponsors from from um, telecommunication, uh, Ballantine's Whiskey, uh, T-Mobile, O'Neill was one of the first sponsors, then obviously Burton Snowboards as well. They were always um, sponsoring the biggest contests. And it was suddenly so cool also for all the blue chip brands to, to jump on that train and decorate themselves with this wild, young, actually not understood, but really um admired sport and snowboarding also had what skiing didn't have it it had three cultural legs which it was standing on it was sport it was music and it was art hmm. so when you would open up a, a snowboard magazine there was suddenly um, an article about a snowboarder who is painting right or a snowboarder who is playing in a in a punk rock band if you and still now if you open a, a a magazine which is dedicated to ski racing you're not going to find an article about a ski racer who is who is doing graffiti or who is playing the guitar it's pretty much only about ski racing and about um about performance of the equipment but the actual spirit and the these intellectual components i just spoke about the this was completely new, and this was a perfect vehicle for big brands um, to to jump on and to use it as a as a transportation vehicle for their marketing message. And we never felt like uh, selling out because it was simply um, putting money into the sport. Athletes could live on. Athletes would have budgets to go filming, and uh, we would have windows in the media. And this all would just make the sport bigger. So nobody ever felt like we were selling out. I think it was all, for everybody involved, uh, a welcomed in, um, development. What do you miss about, say, that culture of snowboarding in the 80s, say, versus the 90s, versus, you know, the first decade of the 2000s, versus now? I mean, 
how do you assess this in terms of things you miss, uh, in terms of things you might like better about the current situation? I don't, I don't know. It, it sure just seems things are not the same. Um, let's speak about identification. Um, I think it was very important in the beginning for snowboarding as a phenomena growing up to be anti-establishment. Mm -hmm. And in the environment of winter sports, the establishment was skiing. So obviously, um, in order to be a true snowboarder in that era, and I'm underlining in that era, you had to be against skiing mm -hmm. because skiing was the establishment. Skiing was practiced by the old ones. Uh, like if your dad is skiing, how lame is that? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm, what I'm saying? So uh, um, skateboarding is cool because your dad is not skateboarding because he's going to break his, his bones. <laughs> Whereas um, snowboarding suddenly was cool because the parents simply didn't do it and the establishment didn't do it and it um the whole re rebellish thing and it might be post-puberty as a phenomena or whatever but uh young people for identification they need to be against something mm -hmm. um sometimes i i don't like it when discrimination is part of i of self-identification uh, this can also backfire, but sometimes it helps for self-identification, especially in the youth. And snowboarding in that era needed to dis skiing for self-identification. It was like this also because the establishment uh, did really harm to us snowboarders. They didn't allow us on the lift, so they really... Um, they put more and more oil in the fire. So um, this era was really interesting and really important. Whereas now snowboarding is on a completely different stage. Snowboarding is a lot more accessible. The, the rebellish era is over. Um, I think we need to, to celebrate our history because in the history, the history preserves this rebellious um, era and it's it's important to to know the history it's important to know where you're from in order to know where you're going we're saying yeah so it's still important but the rebellious um, times are over and snowboarding is here now it's very accessible the the gear is really um, it's an easy entry into the sport because you have beginner boards where you don't catch edge you have really comfortable boots um, also, so clothing makes the, the entry into the sport a lot easier because you have uh, waterproof pants, you have waterproof gloves, you don't have a wet ass immediately after 10 minutes. Um, you have snowboard schools, you have really comfortable chairlifts with, uh, with uh, ramps which are not so steep, which they spit you out on, on, on top of the mountain. So everything is really easy and um, this gives access to a big clientele yeah. and without really making it less attractive in my opinion but maybe this is only for me because i know why it has been attractive 30 years ago but i also know why it's still attractive now okay. so this was 
com- comparing the 80s and, and 2017 regarding identification. Yeah. Um, another thing is regarding um, the respect of snowboarding in the society. In the beginning, it had zero respect. You were really outlaw, and we loved that. And then suddenly, it it got taken over by uh, by media, and we were in in mass media. We would suddenly have an hour live TV in the mid nineties, and um, all the people still wouldn't get it. They would go like, "Why would why would you show this crap on TV? It's so stupid. Why can't I see a ski world cup? I would prefer Kitzbühel and not this stupid." half pipe contest on TV. And we loved that. We were on TV and we were making money and we were uh, getting respect by by the by younger by the younger part of the society and all people just didn't get it. Hmm. And and now snowboarding is Olympic and it is it is big. Um, the the Olympic disciplines they they were always the the part of the Olympic Games with the biggest um, TV viewers, with the most sold tickets for spectators to watch it live. Also, when you see the the most uh, paid athlete is is Sean White. So a snowboarder is actually the guy who makes the most money of all the Olympic athletes. Hmm. So these are are clear signs that snowboarding is here. Yeah. But, and there is a big but, um, 10 years ago, the industry sold a lot more snowboards than um, we're, we're doing now. And there's a, a very, very clear question, why is that? There's a whole bunch of reasons. One, I think, is the fact that the ski establishment has really good infrastructure when it gets to... Um, picking up kids at an early stage and giving them a home with a local ski club and um, skiing being offered as a sport discipline in schools, all that. Snowboarding, uh, let's say 10 years ago, I think media and industry, they made a mistake because they presented snowboarding in such a radical way that nobody could identify anymore with the sport if you would open up a snowboard magazine or watch a snowboard movie from like 15 years ago it was all about urban urban riding rail sliding um really really difficult tricks and it is um pretty much impossible to to reach that level i mean it's always um motivating if you see somebody better but if you see things which you don't understand anymore I think then it gets really difficult to to make people keen on on doing that. It's almost a little bit frustrating. Mm-hmm. And when you when you ask ten snowboarders, whatever age they are, um, like when you dream about snowboarding, what how is your dream? And out of those ten people, probably eight or nine would say a powder turn. And it's a very trivial thing. They they are not they're not saying yeah I'm I'm dreaming about uh, uh, a 1200 rotation or I'm dreaming about a quadruple um, core whatever um, or I'm I'm dreaming about 
riding a 100-meter-long rail in New York City. Mm-hmm. It's all about powder. Mm-hmm. And I think both the industry and the media, they made a mistake not to show snowboarding as a sport which is close to surfing, which is about making a, a normal turn in a in a two feet deep powder face or you are you're surfing a wind lip all these precious components from from snowboarding maybe it was uh, seen as too banal um not radical enough and just just look at a catalog from from the year 2000 hmm. there's no powder shot there's it's all about being evil and and bonking uh, a street sign or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think this really um, put snowboarding in danger because nobody could identify with it anymore. And also, snowboarding is quite expensive. I mean, it's not like skateboarding where you, for for 150 bucks, you get a complete deck with, with trucks and wheels and, and then you don't need money anymore. In snowboarding, you need clothing, you need um, a board boot binding, and then, and this is the biggest obstacle, you need a lift ticket, and the lift ticket is between 60 and, and 90 bucks right now. And snowboarding is probably more expensive than, than golfing, and golfing was always being considered as the elite sport, like super expensive, but snowboarding and skiing is probably uh, at least the same, if, if, if not more. And industry and media, they were only approaching the young guys with a version of snowboarding they were representing. But those guys, the, the purchasing power of uh, 12 to 16-year-old um, customers, it, it doesn't, it's not enough to keep the sport alive. Mm-hmm. And what happened during the last five years, snowboarding started to understand that we need to go back to what snowboarding is all about, make it really comprehensive again and accessible, and also making it accessible image-wise to a clientele which also has money and can afford snowboarding because uh, young kids simply can't. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it took a while for the industry to, to make the turnaround and now during the past three or four years, snowboarding is growing again. Are you then quite happy with the state of snowboard media these days? Do you feel like it really is back kind of on the right track? Or is it kind of a partial movement toward, I think you've articulated really well, what you think kind of snowboard media ought to look like and be doing? How, how close are we currently? First of all, I'm very happy the way snowboarding uh, is being presented by the media. Um, I think everybody was too much tied up and felt observed by by style police. Style police, in that sense, uh, make sure when you're doing a, a trick, you use uh, you touch the board on the right spot with the right hand, or you wear uh, the jacket the right way, or you make the turn the right way, and all these. Uh, 
tight style laws which were from from behavior until aesthetics they were really um almost destructive to the sport and and now everything has loosened up and it's a lot more snowboarding is a lot more tolerant with itself um and this is the necessary soil for the sport to to keep on growing and bringing up new fruits so when you when you open up a snowboard magazine now there's so much turning there's a to make a turn now suddenly is legal again. <laughs> a turn ten years ago was so lame that uh, it was not worth it to to print a picture of a turn. Now a, a turn suddenly is le- is legal again, uh, regardless whether it's on hard pack or whether it's in the powder. But uh, snowboarding is about turning, and then snowboarding has been taken out of the cities again because ten years ago snowboarding was an urban sport only uh, presented in the cities, but nobody snowboarded in the cities. 99% still snowboarded on the mountains. So when you when you see a video again, it's or you open up a magazine, snowboarding is happening in the mountain again. You're using the natural terrain. You not only show park shots from a man-made snow park. Um, now it's really well respected if, if a park rider can take his tricks out to the natural terrain and instead of pulling this awesome new trick over a man-made kicker suddenly you get a bigger applause if you pull it off a natural wind lip or, or a cliff and all these things uh, are really really important for the sport and also the the history um, is is not ridiculous again anymore um, when you see surfing surfing is really proud about its own history you can see images from the Duke in Hawaii and uh, you, you see people from from the 50s, 60s uh, surfing in, in Southern California with really tight trunks and they're standing in front of their 15 feet long boards and you see a Fort Woody in the background on the parking and this is so cool and snowboarding was maybe not old enough so that the history was cool, it was almost a little bit ridiculous but now since snowboarding is uh, 40 or 50 years old it is suddenly cool to look back and 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 accept the roots even though that um, fluorescent jacket and sun cream seemed really ridiculous but it was the coolest shit in, in that era and i think it's very important to really accept your your roots you mentioned early on one of the things that you really valued about the early days of kind of snowboard culture and snowboard media, you talked about sort of three prongs. There was the riding itself, there was music, and there was art. Where would you locate the current state of snowboarding or and or snowboard media? Are we still hitting that, a, a deep music connection and a deep art connection, or is that a bit different? In my opinion, nowadays, the art component has still the same importance. I mean, just compare a slalom ski with with a snowboard. I mean, where can you see more art? Um, snowboards are still paintings. They are still uh, pieces of art in themselves. The, the corporate identity as a marketing instrument is really low-key on a snowboard. Um, so art is still a big factor 
I mean, obviously, you shouldn't buy a snowboard simply because you prefer those graphics over other graphics. I think, first of all, you need the shape and the, the general board concept. Decide on, on whether this is the, the right board for you. But, but then art, obviously, is important. And music, maybe, um, is a little bit less important because maybe um, there is less underground snowboard contests right now as they, they used to be. I mean, all, all the, the snowboard contests still have music, but whereas in an, in an undergroundish, rider-owned, rider-organized snowboard contest in the 80s and 90s, the music was really hard, hardcore, um, uh, either hip-hop or really garage rock. Whereas now it is a little bit more mainstream. So when you when you have uh, a bigger contest, you probably have uh, bigger bands, more mainstream bands. So the musical influence, I think, is is less important right now. But art is still there, full throttle. Hmm. Last related question to kind of culture, and you keep bringing up. Um, sort of surfing and its history. And we've talked a bit about skateboarding. Um, it certainly sounds like you are still paying some attention to those other sports as well. And I'm curious, I guess on the, and you also talked about like ski racing and, and that culture, I guess I'm curious, like, do you look at one of these, um, surfing versus skating versus snowboarding, Who's got kind of the healthiest current culture, in your opinion? This is a very difficult question because um, it requires the definition, what is, what is healthy? Yeah. So, for example, um, skiing, skiing is there. Skiing is is on national TV, it has its its place. There is um, magazines on the newsstand. You have live coverage. You have contests with a couple of thousand spectators. But it's been like this for the last 40 years. Um, probably a very unhealthy um, development on the ski racing side, and I'm talking about ski racing, not free skiing, is that you pretty much have the top five guys who make lots of money, lots, and then all the rest, they probably, they won't be able to put money on the side once they they screw up their bones and have to retire at the age of 30. Hmm. So, but, but apart from that, skiing is here. Um, skiing is here. Skiing is here, and thanks to skiing, we have good good ski resorts, we have um, modern infrastructure, we also have um, on the manufacturing side a lot of know-how, but um, it's difficult to say whether it's it's healthy or not. Skateboarding, I think, is very healthy. Um, it's very particular because there is no associations there. Um, it hasn't, and until now I'm saying, I want to underline that, played a role in the Olympic Games. Um, the Olympic Games, they have been uh, fruitful to some sports. They have been destructive to other sports. Um, for now, skateboarding has been here since the 50s. 
and it has ups and downs and it has changes. There's longboarding coming up and longboarding dying away again. And there's some um, different versions of skateboarding, but skateboarding has always been here. There's always tons of magazines. The magazines are really interesting to read. It's really fresh. It's still rebellish. Maybe skateboarding is the mo most rebellish of all the sports and, and still is. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is still rebellish because it has not been in the Olympics yet. But um, I think it's a, it's a very healthy sport. Okay. And then you have snowboarding. And snowboarding had its ups and downs. It went through through times from being, as I said before, being not allowed on the ski resorts until suddenly being in the Olympic Games. It has its, its ups and downs. But now snowboarding is in a very healthy state again because it has not been so healthy five years ago. But now snowboarding is, is all about enjoying nature, about hiking. We have split boards uh, and, and touring. Skinning is a very, uh, it's probably the only growing factor, the only growing market segment right now in the winter sports industry is, is skinning, regardless whether you skin up, like earn your turns kind of way, yeah. whether you skin up on skis or on your split board. But this is really a big growing segment in the winter sport industry. So snowboarding is, is really honest right now and really, um, really doing well again. And and surfing is is also has always been here. Now we have to see how this whole Olympic discussion is is going on. Snowboard uh, surfing is also getting a lot more serious with with coaching. Now you have the wave gardens, you have uh, artificial waves, you have training centers. You, yeah. you probably soon will have a national team. Hopefully, the national teams they don't wear. Um, uh, all the same clothing because this would be a complete nightmare and would probably be killing this, the sport at, at some point hmm. uh, because all those sports I, I mentioned they really live on um, on an, with an individuality factor and um, uh, ski racing is not they all wear the same stuff they, they appear in teams they have 20 sponsor labels on their chests and and Hopefully, surfing will not end up like that. So we, we have to see what the Olympics will do to surfing. I'm, I'm very uh, impatient to see where it goes. Hmm. This is well known on the ski side of things that um, the backcountry segment is the fastest growing and perhaps the only growing segment of skiing right now. You've effectively, I think, answered this question for snowboarding it sounds similar, you know, or parallel. No, I mean that this is really the case that backcountry riding and split boarding, this is the big segment and, and not merely in terms of media representation per se, but also in terms of where sales are at. Coming back to this backcountry phenomena, I mean, it's a pure consequence of overpopulation. Just see what's happening with surfing. I mean, all the waves, the good waves where you don't need a wetsuit, they are so overpopulated, um, regardless whether it's um, Southern California or Mexico, Baja, Indonesia, Tahiti. It's so overpopulated that it's, it's not fun anymore. And you want to have your own wave. You don't want to fight with other idiots to get your, your, your run in, right? So um, the overpopulation, 
population is pushing surfing towards the pole, I mean, people suddenly they accept colder water. They go surfing to Iceland. I mean, mm-hmm. just the this um, feature Chris Burkett has been doing, yeah. uh, surfing on the above the, the the Arctic Circle. Yeah. I mean, why would you go there? Of course, <laughs> it's a picturesque background, but you pretty much go there because you are on your own because you want to surf in peace, and um, surfing with other people on your wave is is stupid, and it's the same with with snowboarding and the same with skiing when you you go into the back back country because you want to ride powder with an overpopulation it's more and more difficult to find your own track i mean obviously you get your own track with lift access in the morning at at 8 30 but at 8 45 everything is tracked because ski resorts are overpopulated media is is um promoting uh, riding on so the untracked is more and more difficult to reach so obviously you need to get out to the backcountry. And the only thing, uh, the only vehicle, which is for free, uh, because helicopters are not for free, yeah. uh, just to do the maths, is um, skinning there, walking there. And this is the reason why people want to earn their untracked turns. They are willing to invest sweat and energy. And they, they go out, they leave the ski resort, they go out of bounds, and they find the untracked all for themselves. They are in the nature. They can... Uh, enjoy the nature without silly music uh, from from the base lodge or from the parking. Uh, they don't need to share, uh, except with the two buddies they are bringing. They don't need to share it with thirty other tourists. And me personally, I'm really willing to invest a lot of sweat if if I can make sure I get the first track because the first track is is something magic, and and this magic is the reason why backcountry skinning is growing Hmm. so how do you how how do we think about sort of park riding these days versus backcountry and again i guess i mean both in terms of media and in terms of actual sales park riding is um is fun park riding is fun you get perfect kickers you don't need to worry too much whether you are too fast or too slow because the the way they're constructed uh, you somehow unless you are doing something really stupid you'll always end up after the flat and you have uh, rails which are fun to access because you have easy rails you have more difficult rails so it's a good thing to practice but um, at the end of the day it's it's not the real thing it's maybe like probably playing tennis with a ball machine. It's it's good to practice your forehand and get it dialed, but then at the end you really wanna 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 play free. And um, a snow park to get the technique dialed is an awesome playground, but if you get your tricks nailed in the backcountry, uh, if you want to to grind or slash uh, wind lip. Or if you want to pull your your spin off a cliff, it's a, apart from the soft landing in powder because the the landing in in the snow park is never in powder. Apart from that, it's just so much more fun because it's it's untouched nature. You're all by yourself, and and the wind lip has been has been done by by the nature and not by a, by a cat driver. Um, 
you don't know how it is. It's the unknown behind the, the cliff, all these factors. This is the real thing. This is the only real thing, period. Hmm. You, you also asked regarding, um, regarding um, the market. Yeah. Regarding the market of park equipment, um, we sold a lot of park equipment, a lot of park boards and also park skis uh, eight years ago, five years ago. And this um, segment is really, really shrinking also because park boards, they had a very, they would have a very stubby nose because you don't want to have swing weight for rotations or you make the noses shorter. But at the end, those pure park boards, they, they don't work in, in the backcountry anymore because you have no flotation. So um, the entire um, product range has been pretty much pushed towards free ride and backcountry. And, and, and this is good, and this is actually where we are again at, at this point, what I said before with the media. Uh, media, um, they, they show what the market wants, and, and the market doesn't want what the media shows. It's, it's a big difference. It's a big difference, and it's, it's not dictated. It's a way more natural development right now. People want to go in the powder and industry and media follows and and not the other way around and this is very healthy mm -hmm. yeah i'd like to go back and ask you a bit about uh some of your experiences riding uh and your accomplishments then i want to talk a bit about amplid and then we are going to wrap up and we are going to do an entire other conversation where we are going to nerd out about snowboard design uh, and, and ski design, both. Um, but we're just going to save that for another time. So, um, But you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but according to my notes, uh, I am talking with an 11-time German champion, a five-time European champion, a four-time world champion. When I read those stats to you, what sort of stands out as the most, what are you most proud of? Um, actually, none of those titles as a particular decoration. I think more the fact that I, I was doing really well over a very long period of time yeah. because I've been, I've been uh, competing for over 10 years. And uh, I, uh, I think this is more satisfying for me because I've been, I've been doing it long. I've been um, also beating the young guns when when I was at the age of 30. And also, um, it's not that I'm proud of, but I, I'm very happy that I had the chance to actually compete in all disciplines, from, from half-pipe to actually moguls. Snowboarding was also held in moguls in the, in the late 80s, which, is, <laughs> which looks really stupid. But anyway, we did moguls, we did half-pipe, we did... Slalom, GS, downhill. I did border cross. I did um, the king of the hill. I did the Verbier extreme. And I there is no discipline I did not do on a on a world class level. And this is actually uh, what I'm I'm proud of. Yeah, it is wrong of me to be moving so quickly over over some of this uh, your riding career. But there's then this whole other career. You went off um, and started a company called Amplid. And um, I would be, you know, you talked well about 
getting started with Burton, this good relationship with Burton. You were with Burton for a lot of years. Um, talk about sort of when the idea for Amplid came about and how Amplid got started. Well, first of all, I was with Burton for almost 20 years, and I, I got in there as an athlete, as I said, and then I moved more and more into the R&D department, and I had very good colleagues who are still at Burton involved with R&D, and we're still in contact with Facebook and email, and I have very good vibes with Burton, and uh, when I when I drive through Innsbruck, which is an hour from, from my place, I, I pass by and I have uh, coffee with the, with the Burton guys, because Innsbruck is the... European um, subsidiary of Burton mm -hmm. and all good vibes and they still hook me up with boots and with with apparel so all good all good all good with them mm -hmm. and when I um, I actually I didn't want to start Amplet it was my my buddy's fault Anyan <laughs> and Anyan is a friend of mine and he's a skier and um, I pointed out this uh, discrimination thing before that it was important for for a snowboarder in the 80s to be for to find self identification. Uh, you needed discrimination towards the establishment, yeah. but um, I actually I grew out of that very quickly because uh, during the past 20 years when there was powder, we were always a mixed group. We were always skiers and snowboarders and. We didn't really care whether you're riding on on two edges or on four edges, or whether you had you had uh, sticks in your hand. Um, also, the the discriminating terms gaze on trays and pricks with sticks. I never really bought into that. <laughs> um, for me, it was a lot more important that the people I'm riding with they actually share the same vision. And the, the vision was uh, looking for the thickest powder face or looking for the most perfectly shaped kicker or looking for for the nicest wind lip to slash. Um, this was the vision I wanted to share and I didn't care whether he was riding on skis or on snowboards. So Anion was one of the guys from my hometown um, who was on skis. And when he graduated, and this was 13 years ago, he said, hey, I, I don't want to, to get a normal job. I don't want to to be an employee and, and listen to what my boss says, I I'm I can't. I simply can't. I I want to start a ski brand, and I said, well, um, I have a lot of respect. If you need any help uh, for sourcing for production, I can help you. And he said, well, uh, I know that there's this Burton factory in in Austria. Can you hook me up with these guys? Just I'm I'm just curious. Maybe it doesn't work out, and I. I will end up as an employee somewhere, but uh, I, I want to give it a chance because he, he had this this image in his mind that uh, he has this um, super authority boss and he just whips him and he makes him do work he doesn't want to do. So I really wanted to save him from that. So we, we drove to the to this Burton factory in, in Austria and I presented him to the owner. The, the factory was not owned by Burton. It was owned by Mr. Oldenburg, and they had an exclusive deal with uh, with Burton. And uh, the deal was like this: as long as Burton is doing thirty thousand boards in this factory, um, he is not allowed to produce for any other snowboard brand. And 
this was the factory with the biggest know-how at that time and they made all the high-end boards they made the burton custom and and this and that and they made terry hawkinson's boards and so we went there and i introduced my buddy onion to mr oldenburg and i i said well here's onion and he has this dream of starting a ski company and um i know that you have this exclusive deal with with burton uh, regarding snowboards, but maybe you can make um, skis for another brand. So he said, yeah, yeah, sure, um, no problem. I mean, we've been doing skis in the past as well. We still have the presses and this and that. And um, it's actually interesting because um, he doesn't know whether snowboarding is still uh, going up, that he has higher bookings from Burton because it always depends on the market. So he's actually very keen on on helping us or helping Anyan to start a ski brand. Hmm. And then we have been there for almost a full day, and we've been doing the first drawings, uh, and we've been specifying some materials for the first prototypes and this and that. And then suddenly he gets an email, and the email was from, from Burton USA, and they're saying, well, Mr. Oldenburg, uh, we are aware that uh, we have this agreement when we book 30,000 units per year. Uh, you cannot produce for any other snowboard brand, but actually next year we are booking only 25,000 units because uh, we're moving some of the quantities to China hmm. due to the labor. So you are actually allowed to produce for another snowboard industry. So just for your information so that you can plan, right? Hmm. So I said, um, okay, interesting. And then he said, Hey, Peter, don't you want to start your own snowboard brand? <laughs> and I said, no, no, not really. I, I really want to focus on writing and on development. And I'm, I'm not an entrepreneur. I really don't. I, I'm here to help Anyan. And uh, he wants to start his ski brand. And he said something very interesting. He said, Mr. Oldenburg said, Peter, do you actually know that there is no brand out there which started to sell skis and snowboards from day one. Mm -hmm. There's many, many traditional ski brands such as, as Atomic, Focal, uh, Head, you name them. And they've been producing and selling skis for the last 30 years. And maybe five years ago, they started to sell snowboards as well. But they, they have zero credibility. Um, nobody wants an Atomic snowboard. Um, they all have difficulties uh, for credibility I mean, they are in the Ski World Cup. How can you sponsor a Ski World Cup racer and then um, try to sell a good and cool snowboard? It yeah. doesn't work. And I said, I said, no, nah, I can't imagine there's not, not such brand. And it, it was true. At that point, there was no brand who, was, who started and said, okay, here we are. We are a ski and snowboard brand. Actually, other things started that snowboard brands such as Praia or LipTech, they started to sell skis, but even they had difficulties. So whatever you do as a second step, you always have difficulties with credibility. Mm -hmm. What you do at first, it always works. But the second step, if you want to diversify and get into a new target group, it's always difficult, uh, if not impossible. So I said, um, thanks, Oldenburg, Mr. Oldenburg, for, the, for this information. I... I never thought about it, but um, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm really fascinated by, by, by this detail. So um, anyway, we have two hours to drive back now so we can think in the car. 
And on the way back from, from the Burton factory, Anya and me, we actually, we decided to um, not start, not him starting a, a ski brand, but actually we start a brand together um, and we do skis and snowboards under one brand. Mm-hmm. And since we all have been going through this discrimination thing and this and that, we said, okay, maybe it's time to make an anti-apartheid message and uh, don't build our brand philosophy on spray the skier or, or kill the snowboarder or whatever, but actually doing the opposite. Get all together and as, as long as you have the same philosophy in your mind, um, we don't care whether you're skiing or snowboarding come along with us and and use our product for it and this is this is how how amplit actually started so Anya and me we both started the company we owned it and we started to develop skis and snowboards and this is how everything um was born Hmm. i also think you know so typical of a snowboarder to blame the skier for getting him into business. Always, always blaming the skier. <laughs> that was my bad attempt. Um, at joke. No, we're not only blaming the skier. <laughs> no, but seriously, there's enough skiers. They're blaming the snowboarders. <laughs> so for once, so for once, can't we just, can't we just blame the skier for once? Well, we got up to the beginning of Amplid and I think we might actually leave it there for now um, but you have to promise to come back because next time, now we've got all this good cultural, cultural stuff behind us. And next time we are going to, to dive deep into design. And I, I cannot wait for that conversation, but, um, uh, so you, you do promise this, you will come back on. I promise you, I will come back on because it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, but you have to promise that you're not planning this interview on a powder day because I won't be reachable. <laughs> no, no, we'll uh, we're gonna make this happen before before the snow gets too deep uh, in the northern hemisphere. And um, but uh, yeah, I have a an entire slew of questions here that that we haven't um, we haven't gotten to. Um, but uh, this has been really good, and and um, it's I've learned a lot in terms of this history lesson on. Uh, the history of snowboarding, and it's it's a real pleasure to talk to somebody who has been an integral part of it uh, throughout. So, um, yeah, I very much appreciated this conversation, and I'm I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, pleasure is on my side as well, and um, I hope to hear you soon here again. Yeah, for sure. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Peter for the conversation, and of course to our strikingly handsome audio engineer Justin Bob. Till next time, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to become a Blister member to ensure that you'll get your copy of our upcoming 1718 Winter Buyer's Guide, plus get access to all of the flash reviews and deep dive comparison articles we publish on Blister and get access to all of those exclusive deals that we set up for Blister members. Thanks, and we will talk to you next time.